Our sermon this morning is going to be taken from Psalm 139. You'll find that on page 554 of your pew Bibles. Psalm 139. This is the inerrant, infallible, and eternal word of God. For the chief musician, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you form my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more the number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let us pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, this is your word. It is true. It is eternal. And you say to us, your word will not return to you void. So I pray that your, your word would do its perfect work. That you would bless thy servant as they bring forth this word this morning. Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you do a Google search on the meaning or the purpose of life, 
the old age question that mankind has always asked, here's some of the things you'll find online. Carl Sandburg, he was an American poet and biographer, he says, life is like an onion. You peel it off one layer at a time and sometimes you cry. Kelly Clarkson, she sings, when I am lost, I just look in your eyes. You show me the meaning of life. Leo Tolstoy, the sole meaning of life is to serve humanity, noble. But Arnold Schwarzenegger, he says, the key to life is always being hungry. Now, we know those kinds of answers don't in any way satisfy the human spirit. Our inquiry and our longing goes deeper than, than that. We do see a sad example of trying to find the meaning of life from a famous artist, Paul Gauguin, in the creation of his renowned painting late in the 19th century. He called this painting, Where Do We Come From? What Are We? Where Are We Going? The painting wasn't famous initially, but like a lot of Gauguin's paintings, it became prized and valued after he, his death. In fact, he influenced the great Picasso. The painting is notable for its enigmatic subject and atmosphere. Gauguin believed that his paintings had abstract, inexplicable qualities that could not be expressed in words. Some scholars have attributed the characteristics of this particular painting to the personal conflicts that Gauguin experienced in that year prior to him doing the painting. This was in 1897. He was living in Tahiti. Over the previous year, his favorite daughter had died of pneumonia. He ran into debt and was in financial ruin, and his health was failing. Now, if you've ever seen the painting, it portrays men, women, infants, and even various animals, such as animals, cats, and birds, goats, seemingly engaged in everyday activities. One exception would be what appears to be um, a statue of Buddha in the background and somebody front and center holding something above his head. Gauguin considered this painting, Where Do We Come From, What Are We, and Where Are We Going, as his masterpiece and his final artistic achievement. Today you can see it in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Experts in the art world also considered it a masterpiece. It was actually pegged as a quote-unquote a philosophical work comparable to the themes of the gospel. Well, if it was, it really didn't have much of an effect on Gauguin since he unsuccessfully tried to commit suicide shortly after painting it. Gauguin was brought up Roman Catholic, and he may have been exposed to the answers to the questions he had signed to his painting, but it's one thing to know something intellectually but it's another thing to know things in a tr life-transforming way. He survived in trying to take his own life, but with questions still answered at age 51, he took up residence with a 14-year-old daughter of a couple in Tahiti in 1899. He had two children by her. He tragically died in 1903. Fast forward to today. Things really haven't changed. We look at our current society wondering how things could get any worse. We see our children being taught that, that they are basically a cosmic accident, a product of the primordial slime. They face many challenges today as they try to make sense of their lives. They ask such things, am I what my status in society is? Am I my possessions? Am I my looks? 
Thanks to smartphones and social media, the culture of death around us is catechizing our kids around the clock. In their book, Faith for Exiles, research done by David Kinneman and Mark Madlack revealed that only 10% of 18 to 29-year-olds today who grew up as Christians are embracing a lifestyle of consistent Christian discipleship. The basic questions resulting from a search's significance can only be truly and satisfactorily answered by God and his word. We find an example of this in our scripture reading today, Psalm 139. Now my sermon outline, I have verses 1 through 6, God knows all. Verses 7 through 16, God is everywhere and all-powerful. And verses 17 through 24, God's truth for life. In this psalm, David is calling on God, likely during a time he is ruthlessly, ruthlessly being pursued by King Saul. He was fleeing because his life was in danger because of Saul's jealousy of him. Now, a person observing David's circumstances during this period may say that he's alone. Only he isn't alone. He looks to the one he delights in and lives for. God is with him. Now, the first six verses of the psalm reflect on the omniscience of God. That is, that God sees and knows everything. Now, many Christians will hear that term omniscient, omniscience when describing God and think, oh, here we go again with those big theological or doctrinal terms. Many draw back when theological terms are mentioned. But theology is just learning what God is like. Psalm 139, which we're looking at today, abounds with things that form our theology. That is our understanding of God, our understanding of the Lord. In truth, each and every Christian is a theologian. R.C. Sproul said that. Why is that? Since we all have a particular view of God. We view him a certain way in our minds, and that's why... We need to get our theology right. But we see that God's omniscience in the psalm is not expressed in mere doctrine, like doctrine that we can read, that we look in our um, confessions of faith or whatever. No, it is confessed as in worship, as wonder, in adoration. Bringing God's truth back to him in prayer, which David is doing, is something that God delights in because in doing so, we are affirming it and trusting in it. Let me tell you what A.W. Tozer says about Lord's omniscience, that God sees and knows all things. This is what he writes. Go take a deep breath here. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law. All relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. But notice David doesn't say in the psalm, oh God, you know all things. But he says instead, God, you have known me. He says that in the first verse. David knows there was never a time when he was unknown to God. The same goes for all of us. We are never beyond his observation. We see this 
written in the, from the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 12, 3, where it is written, but you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me and you have tested my heart towards you. Our actions and activities may be habitual or they may be intended. They may be open or secret, but with them all, the holy God is well acquainted. This should fill us with a high view and respect for God so that we sin not with courage that we fear not with delight that we mourn not. We see these three effects on David as we read the, all the way through verses six. First, he honors God through his obedience. David, while being hunted, might have responded by just taking the life of his enemy, that is Saul. Just do away what threatens him. But because he knows that God knows all, he refrains from harming Saul because Saul was the Lord's anointed. He doesn't sin even when he had two easy opportunities to take Saul's life. Both instances are recorded in 1 Samuel 24 and again in 1 Samuel 26. Because of David's accurate understanding of God, he doesn't have a small view of God. He fears God and he obeys. Second, David also finds courage that God knows the real story in regards to King Saul's false accusations against him. We see this truth in another one of David's Psalms, Psalm 17, three, verse 3. David writes there, you have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Now you, think of all the times when you've been, when you've been misread by others. Your good motives and your intentions have been misunderstood and you receive flack from others. People may often misjudge or fabric fabricate stories about us from their limited information, but God, however, knows the true situation. The Lord is always a friendly allegiance and support for his own. We read in verse 5 that David, that God has hedged David behind and before and laid his hand upon him. Behind us, there is God recording our sins and in grace blotting them out. Any remembrance of them, there's no need to mourn endlessly over our sins. They have been removed. And before us, there is God foreknowing all of our deeds and providing all our needs. We cannot turn back to escape him because he's behind us, having called us to himself. We cannot go too far forward with vain or foolish actions because he is in front of us and will not let us. In such a position, he also providentially assigns us trials and tribulations at times, lest we think we can handle our lives just fine on our own. In those rough times, we most learn that God's presence is not a distant one, but he is very near to us. David then adds that God laid his hand upon us, on him. Spurgeon writes regarding this, that the Hebrew, in Hebrew, this describes as the prisoner marching along by a guard or gripped by an officer. God is very near. We are holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, in his power. From that power, there is no escape. And thirdly, David is filled with awe. If we look at verse 6, he says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David cannot grasp this attribute of an all-knowing God, a God that knows us better than we know ourselves, the very numbers of our hairs on our head, Matthew 10.30. He even knows when a little sparrow we falls, the needs of a sparrow, a small bird, Matthew 10.29. This knowledge of God 
certainly surpasses our comprehension, but also our imaginations as well. It always seems to be too high for us. Even during the times of our deepest thinking about him, our finite, carnite minds have no capacity to which to measure the infinite. So what are we to do with a God before, before all hearts are open and all desires are known? For the believer, this is her pleasure. His, for the believer, this is his or her pleasure. It is a joy worth knowing, more, is a joy more than anything we could have in this world. David certainly is not alarmed at the fact that God knows all about him. On the contrary, he is comforted and enriched with great blessings. However, for those that reject Christ, the perfection of God's knowledge is disturbing, however, which is one, one, one reason why people try hard not to think about God. You may know people like that. I do. Paul writes in Romans 1 that people do this. They suppress the truth of God. As long as they only think about God in more limited ways, such as the man upstairs or creating him in their own minds, in their own image, the idea of God's knowledge of us is often, often reduced to secular jokes and newspaper cartoons. We see this every day. The subject, however, is not so amusing, however, when we consider Hebrews 4.13, which states, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In verses 7 through 16, David continues his praise to the Lord. This now proclaiming that God is everywhere. We call this his omnipresence, the reason he knows all things. David prays this by asking a, a series of rhetorical questions starting in verse 7. He imagines three different conditions, three different areas in which escape from God might be thought to be possible. But he diminishes each one because he knows the Lord. The first thing he mentions is distance. He contrasts the highest high to the lowest low. That's in verse 8. And in verse 9, as far as the east is from the west. If he flees to heaven, naturally God is there. If he tries to bury himself in the lowest core and depths of the earth, God is there too. Now the word hell here can be taken literally. We know that God is there also executing justice. This also can be contrasted in the old two, only two destinations of eternal life. One of glory, the other of utter darkness. David then adds that even if he traveled to the most remote corners of the world, dwelling in the uttermost parts of the sea, the Lord is still present. The second thing he, he describes is speed. Taking the wings of the morning in verse 9 refers to the speed of light. Notice when the light of the dawn shows itself, it moves from east to west almost immediately, so, it, so fast that it fills the sky in the world. We don't see the light moving across the sky. The dawn appears and the sky is lit. Uh, is, is lightened. David, even moving as fast as the light, couldn't outrun God or be separated from God. And in verse 10, even in distant places, God always holds him wherever he is. And wherever he is, is whatever he is doing, like if, as if he was residing in his own home. 
our missionaries, missionaries on the wall, the ones that we support, they, they know and trust this an essential truth. They have determination and courage to go to the uttermost parts of the world to proclaim the gospel because both the hands of God are with his servants to sustain them. It doesn't matter where they go since God is present with them. So David knows that distance and he knows speed can't remove him from God's sight. Now he talks about the third aspect, hiding in darkness in verse, verses 11 and 12. As far as God is concerned, we're told, he, we always dwell in the light. We see in verse 12 that the darkness and the light are both alike to the Lord. The wicked always prefer the darkness of the night for their evil deeds. Do you notice that? Why is that? Fallen man show their foolishness in thinking in the darkness will hide their deeds from being exposed. But nothing is hidden from him, so they might as well just do their evil works in broad daylight. Still in their arrogance, they think, how does God know? Turn, to me to pay, turn with me to page 518 in your pew Bibles. Look at Psalm 73, 6 through 11. Page 518 in your pew Bible, Psalm 73, 6 through 11. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return there, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? In response to those last two questions, we can read Jeremiah 23, 24. Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Getting into verses 13 through 16, David's praise to the Lord now reflects his great power. We've seen David explain in the previous verses that the reason God knows all is because he is everywhere. And now he adds a second reason, because he has created all things by his power. We refer to this as God's omnipotence, another theological term. David says that God formed his inward parts and covered him in his mother's womb. God not only infused and sees this, but it's his own. Even in darkness, in the innermost place of our mother's womb, when we were lay hidden, we were covered by the hand of God. David that knows that who he is, his physical body, his personality, his soul, are wonderfully and skillfully designed by God as all are all his image bearers. David says that before we, we even knew God, God cared for us. And as Spurgeon writes, we were hid away as a treasure until he sought fit to bring us into the light. We still see David filled with awe and admiration. We should too when we read this, and this should affect us in at least two different ways. The way we view all image bearers, people of all different races, political parties, socioeconomic status, etc., Everyone has value and dignity and should be treated as such. Number two, it should leave one with no room for feelings of inferiority. 
God has made us for his own. We have value. We have significance and purpose because the Lord intentionally made us and all his works are marvelous, as it states in verse 14. David continues in verse 16, God has established our future days that lay ahead. Even before we existed, we were in his sketchbook of foreknowledge and providence. Now, no one can read these verses thoughtfully today, especially without considering the obvious bearing on the contemporary issue of abortion. Wouldn't an affront to the Lord, think about it, wouldn't an affront to the Lord after we read these verses, the intentional destruction of his innocent image bearers? How dare people call these individuals that he has created just a lump of tissue and destroy the more than a million and a half babies he has created each year? As we get into the last section of the psalm, we see starting in verse 17 that David is reflecting on all that he has said of God and the impact it has had on him. In amazement, he refers to God's thoughts about him by saying how precious they are. They are deep and, again, cannot possibly totally comprehend it. We see the Apostle Paul breaking out in a doxology in Romans chapter 11 after he's, he's writing Romans, which is a rich theological text, again, the truth about God. He breaks out and prays. He says, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. If God treated David and us as we deserve because of our sin, he could justly be watching over us to do us hurt. As David has written in 5, 50, Psalm 51.4, that verse basically says, David saying, God, if you chose to send me to hell for my sin, I can't blame you. However, we see God who knew David, thought of him, and his thoughts towards him were thoughts of love. How unfaithful, I mean, excuse me, how often is the Lord faithful to us who tend to be unfaithful? Even in the seventh century before Christ, recorded in scripture, God, after chastening his people for their disobedience, would lead to their captivities by the Babylonians. God expresses his hesed, that Hebrew word referring to his faithful covenant love to his people. We see that in Jeremiah 29. Turn with me to page 695 in your pew Bible. 695, Jeremiah 29, 11. A lot of this, this verse may be familiar to a lot of you. God says to his people, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. How many of us can look back on our walk with Christ and see God working for us in providence in ways we could never imagine him bringing us good? We may not see it in our present circumstances. We may be afflicted with difficulties, blind, totally blind to the invisible hand of God. But the Lord is always working there for us, often beyond what we've even asked for or even could hope for. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who are called to God according to his purpose. As God's children, we go about our lives. God is not only just giving us pardon, but he's also renewing us. He's upholding us. He's supplying us, educating us, and perfecting us. 
In, in fact, as Spurgeon writes, there are a thousand other ways of blessing that well up in the mind of the Most High. Yes, God's good thoughts to us are more the number than the sand, as we read in verse 18. And not only that, they're constant. David says when he awakes, God is still there. This is also proclaimed in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. A lot of you are familiar with this verse. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Matthew Henry writes that our thoughts concerning God must be delightful to us above any other thoughts that we may have. Now today, one thing that people are clamoring for in our culture, both believers and unbelievers, is justice. In fact, Pastor John Stovall, a lot of you may remember him. He was our assistant pastor here for a season. He's now in, uh, towards, uh, in Georgia, around the Atlanta area with his own church. He once told me that justice is a, a topic, a good topic, in a way to reach non-believers, unbelievers, in regards to the gospel. David says in verses 19 and 20 that he knows God, who sees and knows all, is grieved with the presence of evil. It is natural he removed the wicked by his power. His patience in seeing his good creation defaced and defiled by wickedness will come to an end. Wicked men may go unpunished for a lack of evidence in the court. They may not be held accountable because of an incompetent judge or a corrupt judge, but this can't happen in the case of God. God exercises perfect judgment. Nothing escapes his gaze. We're next to told by God's enemies that they take his name in vain. We see that in verse 20. They can use his name in jest or in the context of a swear word. We know that is taking God's name in vain. But they can also do it by pretending to be religious or pious, acting as though they were a friend of God, all the while while using this to support their malicious plan. Jesus himself had described, describes as such, in Luke 20, 47, they who devoured the widow's houses. David doesn't want to be near these people, he says. He wants them to depart. He says he has a sincere and perfect hatred of them. He considers them his enemies. It's, it's as if David is saying, if God will not let you live with him, I will not have you live with me. You would destroy others, and therefore I do not want to be associated with you in any way. Depart from me, because you have departed from God. Now, we need to take uh, careful note of David's words. It's the sin that is hated. All sinners, really, are to be lamented by God's people. To love all men with benevolence is our duty. But to love any wicked man with complacency would be a sin in our part. We see this written by the, uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, the Apostle Paul says that the wicked are deserving of death, but not only those, but those who approve of their deeds. Love the sinner, hate the sin, as the saying goes. In verse 23, David prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. He also adds a request for God to try him and probe his innermost thoughts and feelings. Isn't it remarkable that a psalm beginning with David's declaration that God knows all things, should end with the request of God to search and know David himself. 
God is being asked by David to use his great, perfect, and pervasive knowledge to benefit David personally. He is willing to submit himself to God's correction and his direction. He wants God to use the knowledge he has of him to expose any unknown sin. This is a serious request, since it can invite painful exposures of ourselves from this type of what people call a spiritual surgery. But it is important, and it's a wonderful thing to pray for. It would be to our great detriment for sin to remain in our hearts unknown and undiscovered. Because we are precious to the Lord, he will graciously reveal all things as he sees fit to bring them to our forefront. Why is this? Because this is his primary will for us. What's that? Our sanctification, to be made holy, that we grow more and more in holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 And who he who has begun a good work in you and us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 And this leads us to life everlasting. Now in a world that we live in with 8 billion people, it's tempting to think that God has enough to look after to be concerned with each and every individual. Yet here in this psalm, David has stated of God, you have known me, you encompass me, you surround me, you created me, you test me. We've looked at big theological words like omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence. They're all here in the Psalms, but not the words themselves. The truth of these words are, however, David has written a practical psalm that embraces practical theology that forms our what? Our doctrine. We all have doctrine. Doctrine is important, but even more so, we need correct doctrine. What we know about God affects every aspect of our lives. The more we know about him, the greater capacity we have to love him and a greater capacity to glorify him. J.A. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, he says, living because an, becomes an awesome business when you realize that you spend every moment of your life in the sight of an all-knowing and ever-present God. Again, you can respond to this by saying this is a terrifying reality, or as David did, an unbelievable privilege. What's the determining factor in how we respond to this truth? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and men. Jesus said in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Romans 5, the first two verses in chapter 5, says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into his grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It is by Christ that we not only have peace with God, the forgiveness of sins, that we can rejoice in his presence, but we also become adopted sons and daughters in Christ, we can address the holy God, the God of the universe, as Father. God commands all to come to Lord Jesus Christ. No, it's not an invitation. To those who give heed, he gives eternal life and hope to those struggling in their existence. God's word provides the answers to the questions, where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? If only someone had said to Gauguin, 
why don't you read the Bible? By doing so, he may found the question to which question number one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what we were made for. This psalm that we've read, and many of the other psalms too, we find everything, all the emotions of life, which is joy and sorrow, grief, doubt, fear, all expressed in the longings of our heart, we found in the book of Psalms. And it all is set within the context of an infinite and unlimited goodness and knowledge and power of the Almighty God. Now, Alistair Begg, a lot of you may listen to him on the radio. He says, he tells his congregation all the time, we always need to think Christianly. What does that mean? We have to be thinking Christianly. We have to be thinking of God's word. For faithful, we need this for faithful and joyous living. How do we accomplish that? Again, by giving heed to God's word. That's in, that verse is in Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. So my, my encouragement to all of you would be diligent. Please be diligent in reading and studying your Bibles. Read good books. Listen to good preachers. The session has even provided for you free copies of Tabletop Magazine to all those who want them. And it's my sincere prayer for you very readily that you would want to read them. I strongly encourage you to do so. Copies are on the back table. We just got the new month's copy. This is a great way to grow in your knowledge of God. There's daily readings that a lot of you can look at. Uh, each reading has a portion of the Bible. You can read through it, and it gives you enlightenment on what God is saying in his word. It's like little easy-to-read commentary. And the articles are sound. They're very good. Uh, they're written by godly men and women in a way that's easy to understand. And I, I read every month the cover of Table Talk, and I learn something every time I read it. So, and... Uh, it's put out by Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul's ministry. So please take advantage of that resource, uh, please. Because the more we know and understand about God, yes, our theology is the key in giving greater and greater worship to the one who is great and greatly to be praised. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We thank you that you know us better than we know we ourselves. As with David, Father, we can pray to you and thank you for that. What a friend we have in you, Lord Jesus Christ. You are there. You are our anchor, our strength. We thank you that you are everywhere. You're omnipresence. That no matter where we go into the uttermost parts of the world, like our missionaries, you are there with us, O oh Lord. You know us. You are there with us. And Lord, we know that you have the power to answer prayer according to your will. That if we pray according to your will, which we get from reading your word, you hear us and we will have the things that we have asked of you. Your arm is not shortened, O Lord. You're all powerful to bring forth what you decree. You give heed to the prayers of your people. We thank you for that. So we pray this day, O Lord, as we go 
from this place, that you would bless us in our service, in our love, commitment, devotion to you, that we'd be diligent in studying your word, not because it's a task, O oh Lord, because we delight in learning more and more about you. As, we, as you directed our past when we got to know our spouse or our girlfriends, Father, we wanted to know all about them. So shall our love for you be that we want to know everything about you, and we pray that you would put that within our hearts. May you receive all the praise and the glory this day. In Christ's name, amen. Let us sing.